You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Jim Wolfrey, and you're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Alan Smith. Alan Smith is an English football manager, football's equivalent to a head coach, who has managed Dulwich Hamlet FC, Crystal Palace and Wickham Wanderers. In 1994, Alan coached Crystal Palace to the Division I Championship and was also awarded the League Managers Association Championship Manager of the Year. In 1995, he led the team to the semi-finals of both the League and FA Cups. In a career that spans over 40 years, he has worked with some amazing coaches and helped develop players like Gareth Southgate and Chris Coleman, who have gone on to have successful coaching careers of their own. Alan is a positive and energizing person with a lifelong passion for helping others develop. He is also a strong advocate for finding a mentor as a head coach to help you be the most effective leader you can possibly be. Some of the key highlights of this interview for me include his view that you shouldn't treat your athletes as one-dimensional sports people, but you should rather see the whole person and try to help them learn and develop for life. How, as a high-performance coach, you have to treat players as individuals, which means you cannot apply blanket rules for the team. And 
that great coaches don't talk about their achievements, even if they were champion players. It has to be all about the players and the people they are looking after. This was a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. The Great Coaches Podcast. So, Alan Smith, good morning, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Morning, Paul. Lovely to be here. Well, lovely to have you to talk a little bit of football, or as we call it in Australia, soccer. But could I start with a really simple question, Alan? Where are you in the world, and what have you been up to so far today? Well, I'm based in about 11 miles outside of London. I've done my sort of country walk, and after we finish today, I'm going to have a, a quick train journey up to London. I'm going to walk along the embankment. It's about five miles, but Paul, it's a marvellous walk. You start from the Tower of London, and I end up about the Houses of Parliament and cut through to the changing of the guard, which finishes about four o'clock. So that, that's going to be my day. I'm a massive Fulham fan, so I've got to get to the television sometime to watch that. Crystal Palace don't play till Monday. So it's, it's a combination today of sport, fresh air, and just getting out and seeing whether we're getting out of this lockdown a little bit. Alan, it sounds fantastic. So I want to start by saying thanks for giving us a little bit of your time before you head off on an adventure that I'm very envious of being locked down here in Prague. But Alan, I'd like to start, if I could, just by talking about some of the great coaches you've had experience with. I've heard interviews where you've talked about the admiration you've got for Dave Sexton and Dario Grady, but you've also had firsthand experience with people like Alan Mullery, Steve Koppel, Martin O'Neill, Kevin Keegan. So just an easy question to begin with, what do you think the great coaches do differently? I think they've got all those people you've named who are actually quite big-name players, and that doesn't funny enough or make a good coach. I work with some so-called big names who still talk about their self, and if you're a coach, you can't really do that. It's about the player and the people you're looking after. And I'd say the majority of those people got that. They understood Steve Coppola and Kevin Keegan in particular were good at understanding the changing room, the mood. You can't just go out and turn up on a nine o'clock on a, on a Monday and say, I'm going to coach ABC. You've got to get the mood of the group and you've got to realise they're all different individuals. So I'd say out of that group you just mentioned, certainly Keegan, Martin O'Neill, Steve Koppel, who I worked with for eight years, they understood the changing room and what was good on a particular day. Don't, as a coach, have a, have a short-term and a long-term plan, but be prepared to alter it. And I think those, all of those guys could do that. They could get in the mind of the player. So I would like to just pick up on that, actually, because getting into the mind of the player is not an easy thing particularly when players have got self-doubt or they're being disruptive. How have you found the best ways of, of actually penetrating that exterior and getting into the mind of an athlete? Well, I think quite often we find in, in sport and in life, really, the most talented people actually take a little bit more handling. They're different. You take it to, in people like cricket and you go back to the Botham era and, and you go into football with Gascoigne and Ian Wright, who we had at Palace, Ian was an incredibly talented player, but he was like a spring. And you, you had to treat him slightly differently to other people. And I think that's the biggest, what's good for one person might not be good for another. 
Now, I think there's certain principles you've got to keep to, Paul. Timekeeping, I think we've all got to know that nine o'clock means nine o'clock. Dress code, yeah, to a certain extent. I think if we're representing a company or a business, we want people to be a little bit more uniformed at certain times. But I think we've got to appreciate that when you're dealing with players or individuals, you've got to treat everybody differently and understand their mindset is different. So if I'm talking to my goalkeeper, am I going to be talking to him the same as my centre forward? Probably not. My goalkeeper is a more steady guy, maybe a little bit more sensitive. So as I've gone on with my coaching theories, I think I much prefer those one-on-one, one-on-two sessions rather than talking at the group. Never talk at the group. I think that's a problem. So my, my sort of advice would be try and pull people aside, have collective rules on timekeeping and make those collective rules. Sometimes let the players make them. If it's for being late, they do the fines. They know the rules because they make them. You left school without passing any final exams or any qualifications, but you had this deep desire to get into sport. And I'd like to ask, where did that desire come from? I think I wasn't at that time going to be good at anything else. I was brought up in a rough part of Fulham, brought up in a place called North End Road Market, and you had to be pretty streetwise to live there. You had to be at the head of the game. There were a lot of rough parts of it. And my whole life was brought up by at the age of five, going to Fulham Football Club, watching it. Every night I trained in the Fulham Recreation Ground, which was up the road to where I lived. Or we played street football. And at that time, all I wanted to do was play football. I had no real education. I had a really good PE master at school who was connected with Wimbledon Football Club. So my passion was to get into football. And it wasn't until I got into my late 20s that I... I realised they needed another qualification. And I actually worked for a company that was owned by the chairman of Wimbledon Football Club, the big firm of surveyors. And I qualified as a chartered surveyor. And so I'd gone from having no education to studying quite a lot because I'd had a car crash, which was totally my fault. And so I, I, but I, I never wanted anybody to know I was a chartered surveyor. And if you think about it, Paul, I mean, I played against or I managed against Alex Ferguson on six or seven occasions. And normally that's as tough as it gets. You know, I was the manager when Cantona got jumped in the crowd. But the point I'm going to make is you can't go into the players at half time who are looking to you for help against Manchester United and say, guys, I can sort this out. I'm a chartered surveyor. Don't worry. So I, I, I sort of shelved it, really. I, I, you know, I really did not want to go back to that academic route. It got to the stage. When I got to about 55, I decided to come out. I thought, right, I'm coming out. I'm a charter today. So I, I, I use that every so often. But again, I think when I'm looking after players, I don't want them to be as one-dimensional as that. I want them to think outside the box and think you're not always going to be a sportsman. You're not always going to be a footballer. What else can I do? And some of the people I deal with now are actually are very good off the field, can have you know, sort of hold grown-up conversations. Well, your first two coaching positions were actually with non-league teams, Wimbledon and Dulwich Hamlet. 
And I read where you were reflecting on these experiences and you said, quote, I never thought it would prepare me for managing in the Premier League, but it actually did. What was it about those first experiences that did prepare you for the highest level? Look, I was so lucky. Out of all the famous people I've worked with, my first coaching job was at Wimbledon with a guy called Alan Batsford. And Paul, he was absolutely brilliant. He was as tough as nails. He used to go absolutely ballistic in the changing room. But he was organised, he had a structure, and what he believed in was fitness rules. We used to train ridiculous hours. And without him, I really wouldn't have become what I did in the end. I mean, when we went to the, um, I lost his car keys once, and he absolutely went ballistic. And I denied losing them. I actually buried them in my, my garden in my house. I lived in a little terraced house, because he was that frightening. He wasn't off the field. He was very polite, very articulate, but his passion. When we went to the cup final in 1990, I was the assistant manager. I wrote him a note saying, Alan, if it wasn't for you, I'd never be here. You, you were the biggest influence I've had. P.S. Your car keys are in 101 Manor Way, Mitchum, if you want to go around there. So again, I sort of got back some glory. So that was really good for me, that experience. I, I worked with Dave Bassett, who went on to, who was a player but went on to be a coach. And then I went to Dulwich Hamlet. I was 29, Paul. You know, what did I know about coaching? I'd, I'd done all my coaching badges. I had to pay for them myself. I didn't have anybody subsidising me. I didn't have a club. But over that four years, I learned how to manage players, how to organise coaching sessions. And in my first year there, we won the championship. And what I love about it most of all is that every one of those players, bar one, a guy called Rodney Brooks, is still alive. We still meet up two or three times a year and have a beer and we're on WhatsApp groups together. And I'm really proud of the fact that I coached them and managed them. It's a very famous non-league club in, in London that we all meet together, all of us, and we're good friends. And I think, you know, I gave them a hard time when I was 29. I can remember that. I don't know, I was a cross between Brian Clough and Malcolm Allison, which is a little bit embarrassing to say. But they, they, they were really good. And I think that is another thing about coaching, is you, you bond with people. That's what you're there for as the coach. You're not there to be a dictator. You're not there to be, it's all about you. So again, I learned through that experience, although my humility and my ego at that time was my ability wasn't a lot and my ego was quite big. So I learned again to temper that as I took the next stage. There's a great theme, Alan, that runs through your life, or at least all the research and articles I read about you, and it's your passion for player development. And, you know, there's another great quote where I've got from you when you say, I didn't just look for people to be good at football. I wanted decent guys to. And your goal was that if you didn't make it in football, they'd go back into society and do well. But I imagine at the time, that idea was not very common. So how did you develop that philosophy? Well, I always say as a football manager, you're judged on on one thing and one thing only. Do you win or do you lose? People just remember managers for winning and losing. They say, oh, he's a bad manager, he's a good manager. As a coach, you're there for development. The winning and, and losing shouldn't be the end all and be all. And when I joined Crystal Palace in 1984, the youth system had been scrapped. They hadn't had a youth system for two years. 
And I found this whole deflated group of young kids of 16 and 17, not knowing where they were going, not knowing what they were going to do. And I had to lift them and say, look, even if we don't succeed as a footballer, we're going to be decent human beings. And when I look back, and I don't look back too much, because there's too much to enjoy in life that, that is going on, and there's always new challenges with wanting to either mentor other people. But I do think that the players then, I, I look back at all the old team photographs and I can never find a bad somebody I didn't get on with or that I didn't respect. And that through 84, 85, and then we began to 1990 to the cup final and the championship. All of them, if I bump into them in the street, have turned out really decent guys. The lovely thing is, if you take players at a young age, you can develop them. If you inherit people of 28, 29, you can still do that. And I did manage to do it, but it's much more difficult. So if you go in as the youth team coach, you have a real big influence on on that person's where he's going to go up. And, you know, I know one or two lads who I've coached now, very good solicitors in the city, a couple of them went into accountancy, and they, they saw the bigger picture. But if you're a coach, as a generalisation, you're not very well paid. Wherever you coach, people do it for the love. Some of the people you've interviewed in the past, you, you start off. So you've got to really give people a bit more than just saying there's a ball, kick it from A to B. In your first year at Dulwich Hill, as you said a minute ago, you win the championship, and then the same thing happens when you're the first year as the head coach at Crystal Palace. Was there something similar in both of these instances? Was there a thing you did at the start of the season that drove those results? I think in both teams, although they were totally different, I had good players. That's the key. Selection is key when you're choosing people to work in an office, to work around the place. You've got to actually just have somebody that's on the same wavelength as you and can buy into your ideas. And at both Dulwich and, and Palace, I had that. I was incredibly strict on pre-season. We always had a tough pre-season. At Dulwich, we couldn't afford it, but we would go to a holiday camp. We'd go to a Butlins for a week and train. And the players had to take a week off their, their jobs. And at, and at Palace, we spent most of our time. I'd always do a pre-season in Portugal. We'd, we, we do what 10 days in an army barracks, which Paul was a killer. Even for me, it was a killer. You know, I see that bugle going off at five o'clock in the morning and we trained with the Grenadier Guards up at Caterham. And we did that for a week. And it was a bit like a hot cold shower. We do that for a week. And then we go to Portugal to the Algarve for 10 days. And I always thought that set my pattern for the season. Fitness. And if we had a good pre-season, if I go back to when I was the assistant manager, we had one pre-season where we went to South Africa just after apartheid and our host was a guy called Johnny Byrne. He was an ex-player at Palace. Lovely, lovely man, gregarious and great character. But he loved a brine. He loved going out every night on the beer and having a wine. And that is not a good pre-season. Trust me, if you, you think it is, but it isn't. And it was very difficult being the first white team to go to South Africa to stop their hospitality, whereas... When I did the Portugal trips and the army camp, it was very disciplined. We got up at six o'clock in the morning, we trained, we got a rest. And so I, I think looking back, I think preparation is key. 
you don't just jump into the game. And I, I really sort of put great emphasis on from the day we were back, the kit had to be bright. Everybody had to be bright. I had to change the diets of players because, again, I was brought up in an era where when you finish training, you had pie and mash. And suddenly, I'm trying to educate people. Well, let's have pasta. Let's have more water. And that was very much against what the English theory was about as a footballer. And, you know, if you look at some of the great Manchester United players, they just went out and played. They, they were Arsenal under George Graham. The players would go out drinking two or three times. But that culture, we had to change it a little bit. And it was very difficult. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. One of your most famous players is, of course, Gareth Southgate. He writes about his experience with you in his book. He ends that those couple of pages where he talks about you with the advice to to find a mentor, a person that can be there for you when you need guidance. It must be so rewarding and wonderful to have someone of Gareth's stature talk about you so warmly and with such fond memories. But I'd like to ask, who were the mentors that helped you as a coach when you were moving along? Well, I didn't really, if I'm honest, have anybody of any great statue. Uh, people were much more ruthless in that, that period. There wasn't, people saw that as a weakness. If, you, if I'd have said when I was being brought on as a coach, I want a mentor, I think people would have thought that was quite strange. We were very macho. We were very much out there. Gallus talks about it in his book. People see us as we are now. They see you there. They, they see me, they see Jim, they see the self-confidence we seem to have. But actually, there's a lot of self-doubt in all of us. And I, I must say, I didn't really have anybody that mentored. You know, my father always came to games when I was manager at Dulwich, and I'd ask Dad a few things. Alan Batsford at Wimbledon, I wouldn't have asked because I thought he was too. He was a good coach and he was a good man, but he was quite austere. So I didn't have that benefit. The, the only benefit I had was I would go and watch people train. I would go and watch Dave Sexton when he was the manager at Chelsea, and I'd pick up his habits. They had a guy who ran their reserve team called Dario Grady, who was coached a lot of young players, and I'd watch him. But I didn't really have a, a mentor. It was pretty much a dog-eat-dog thing, and I'd go on the coaching courses, and we'd go to Lily Shaw, and we'd go to places like that, and there'd be 500, 600 coaches there, some from big clubs, from Everton to other clubs. It was quite amazing. 
So I didn't really, I, I must admit, I didn't have a mentor. I just went and watched people and thought, well, that's good. I'll keep that idea. I'll watch that coaching. But there weren't many that I could really talk to. And I found the coachings at the FA were very austere. They didn't really want to help. And it's funny, years later, because I became a coach for the FA, I looked at one of my coaching groups one day, and on it was Glenn Hoddle, Mick McCarthy, and a couple of other famous people. And I'm now taking this group to pass their coaching qualification. And my coaching qualification, besides I was quite studious and I knew all the rule book, but with coaching Dulwich, Hamlet and, and Wimbledon, as you've alluded to, suddenly I've got these international players. I'm telling them how to coach to pass their exams. And I went and got my food one day and I went down to sit with them. And one of them looked at me and said, no, you can't sit here, Alan, internationals only. Went, oh, God. And I picked up my plate and when I walked away, I felt very, God, it's me. And it was quite funny because three months later, I played against one of the coaches I was managing Palace and we beat them 3-0 and I couldn't help but go up and say internationals only. So to answer your question, I, I, I didn't have a mentor. You, you learned as you went along. And again, that's why I think now I have certain people that I mentor that I don't talk about because I think it's between me and them and a couple of them you've interviewed in the past. I, I can see the need for it, but then it was seen as a weakness. It was, oh, yeah, well, you have to go and ask somebody. And Gareth, even now, I spoke to him yesterday, but normally I try and keep off of football matters. I think there's enough people saying to Gareth Southgate and saying to managers, why don't you put him at right back? Why don't you put him at left back? They want to actually talk about something else, about their presentation or how they should deal with an off-the-field situation, which is much more important. One of the great ideas, Ellen, that you had long before it became popular was the concept of a leadership group, getting the players to take ownership of the rules, which you talked about earlier. It just made me wonder, what would be your advice to other coaches on the importance or, or the timing of when they should step back and really let the players take over? Well, I'm a, I'm a great believer in, first of all, not talking at people. I'm a great believer in making people make decisions, making them think for themselves. And that implies the office environment. I, I don't think that's any different of saying people want to be included. So I've always been a believer in a strong changing room. I learned that, I think, probably more from Steve Coppel. He would let the players make important decisions. I mean, we went to Liverpool once when the players didn't want to wear our club track suits. And he said, I'll let them wear what they like. I don't care. Let them make the decision. So we turned up at Anfield in all sorts of, some Adidas, some Puma. But the players thought they'd made a decision. They didn't like the track suits they had. And we managed to beat Liverpool 2-1 because it bonded the group. Because they made the decision. They didn't like the track suits. They made the track decision. They were prepared to go there in another. And we won the game. And I wasn't overjoyed about it because I didn't think it gave the right attitude. And also, when you've got young players coming up into the team, you don't want them doing it. I think you've got to curb that a little bit. But we won, we won the game 2-1. And I said to Stephen, the, the track suits, the ones we should have worn, went missing. And I said to Steve after, well, what are we going to do about it? He said, Alan, what would we have given to beat Liverpool on Saturday? Would you give them £1,000, £10,000? I said, yeah, probably. He said, well, in that case, let's forget about the tracksuits. They made the decision. We won the game. Let's live by it. So again, 
I would put as much responsibility onto the player because you want a thinking person. I, I get a bit frustrated sometimes when I, you know, I was quite lucky, I think, Paul, because in, in the day we didn't have agents. So it was much easier to form a relationship with, with players and talk to them. Now, sometimes some agents, they want to take over the player. And I really don't like that. I don't. If I talk to you, I want to talk to you. If I want to do this, I want to, and we're going to do something on social media. I want to be the one who makes a decision about it. So I think the good coaches are good mentors. Whether they need a whole loop of other group of people acting for them, I don't know. But I would say to anybody, put the onus on the player. It's his body. It's his life. It's his career. And discuss it. Don't order it. Discuss it. There's plenty of times in the afternoon to, to, to get to know each other. So that, that would be my view anyway. You've talked a couple of times already about the importance of the changing room. I'd like to ask, what experience or do you have any particular routines or methods that you have on dealing with disruptive players in the changing room? Get rid of them. <laughs> Simple as that. I only had... In my time, one disrupted player who was an older player, he was 35, he was stuck in his ways. He, he, he was still in that era of wanting to go out drinking at lunchtime. And I just had to cut our losses very, very quickly. But I never had that as a generalisation. But I would say cut it out very, very quickly if it's there. Most people, you can you can talk round and if they see your point of view, fine. But... If, if you've got one bad apple, it will spread very, very quickly. And that bad apple, by the way, isn't somebody that might have a different opinion to you or want to go about something differently. And I think, again, if you've got a strong group of people in your office, in your change room, they will change it themselves. I've found quite often uh, with Chris Coleman and Gareth Southgate, Richard Shaw, and I'm just naming three players, if there was a problem in the changing room on something that, that had happened on the field, by the time I got into the changing room, they'd sorted it out. They were brutal. If somebody hadn't done their job or they'd conceded a free kick, or they'd, they'd sorted it out. Again, I found that very much with being a Steve Coppola's assistant at Palace. The players were demanding there. Again, I'd use the word bear pit. And if players didn't perform, they knew. They didn't know from Steve and I. They knew from themselves. They sorted it out quickly. Alan, you went back to Fulham to start up their academy. And at the time, Kevin Keegan introduced you to the club chairman by saying, you wanted the best, now you got the best. That's an amazing endorsement from, from one of the greats. Well, that, of the game. That, that was Kevin, Paul. I mean, Mohamed Fyad, he looked at me and said, I never heard of you. Because Fyad was in that, he went up to his big office at Harrods. He sat there, he got about five secretaries. The office was grandiose. So that was his way of testing me, but saying he'd never heard of me. Kevin just put his arm around me and said, look, you wanted the best, Mr. Chairman, I've got it. But Kevin was like that. He, if, you, if, if you upset him, woe betide you. He had incredibly high standards. His work rate was unbelievable. He'd get the five o'clock train down from Newcastle sometimes, be at the training ground. Very, very passionate. Whether he was always tactically aware, I wouldn't know. But he believed in passion and enthusiasm. For me, it was a lovely move because I'd had three, I'd been brought up in Fulham. I was a Fulham fan. To then go there with Fired owning the club and Keegan as manager and Ray Wilkins, who I who played for me and played for England, 
It was a great experience. And again, I was able to start the academy from nothing. They didn't have an academy. Keegan allowed me to go and get the training ground. We paid for about £2 million for it. And it was probably one of the most enjoyable experiences I had because there was no pressure on winning games. I was just developing young players to, to wear the Fulham shirt, which was, for me, was brilliant as a kid who'd stood on the terraces. I've heard you talk about the fact that when you were at Fulham, you gave every new player a signed copy of the team's history. It made me wonder, actually, do you think a sense of history is important for the modern football coach or even the modern player? Well, personally, I do, but that's a little bit old school. I I want the player to understand what he's representing, who he's representing. Fans spend a fortune on going to games, and I don't think some players, not all, just quite understand what it means to a football fan leading much a a normal life. I'm not saying a humdrum. The disappointment if people don't play, and I think they, they should have. So what we did at Fulham was that we, we have something called Fulham's history. It goes right back to the great Johnny Haynes and when the club has been developed. And Kevin would sign each copy to the player. He never was bad on that. I mean, it's quite a lot, 200, 300. And he put to, to Kevin, do your best, etc. Ray Wilkins would sign it. And I would give it to the player. And then every so often we'd have a little forum, not to embarrass them, but just to ask them. So I, I, for me... Look, the shirt means everything, and that's not me being sentimental about it. I just think it's too easy for players today to be in transit. At the moment, we at Fulham have got we've got six players on loan. I'm not 100% that really works for you. I think you need to know the company that you work for, who you're mixing with. So for me, it will be key, whether it's key for the players. Again, I just make it mandatory. That's, this is the history of our club. So you left Fulham and you went back to Crystal Palace because you felt there was unfinished business, but you've been quite open talking about the fact that you didn't think it was a good decision and the chemistry wasn't right at the time. And it made me, just listening to you and hearing you and talk about chemistry, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the elements are of of a good chemistry and how would you advise someone to to build one? Well, I think you've got, that. it doesn't come overnight. I think with chemistry, It's a question of you all mixing together. I believe you don't have to be the best coach in the world, in the world, if you don't get on with the other group. I think it's all understanding one's weaknesses, one's strengths within the group. Again, I've been very lucky with the coaching staff I've always had. And I was very loyal when I was a coach. Sort of just getting back to the Palace situation. I mean, again, I was advised by Steve Coppola. Steve Coppola said to me, Alan, I don't. Why well, wouldn't go back if I was you? I think it's a it's a top a toxic situation there. He'd been the manager in pre season. They'd lost all their games, and he said, "I just think there's going to be a clash." And he was exactly right. So there was somebody that I really should have listened to. But to use your phrase, I thought I'd left there in unfortunate circumstances when when before we got the sack when we finished fourth from bottom of the newly formed Premiership. We'd been to two cup semi-finals, and I felt I could pick that up. But when I went through the door, so it, it just goes to show to me that you have to build a chemistry. It's not going to come overnight, and it certainly wasn't going to come overnight. Place, but I'd say to in most clubs, be patient. Be don't don't try and rush things. And if you don't think it's right for you, don't try and attempt to change it. That 
at that time, that was a toxic club. It was a toxic 10 months. I didn't enjoy it, and I'm sure fans didn't enjoy it. And also, I think it left a bit of a scar on me as well. You know, I was thinking, if I'm going to become like the people who are running it, all my beliefs started to go out the window. And if you then start doing things you, you don't really believe in, that is definitely the time to get out, money or no money. I was quite, actually, I was quite well paid for that period at Palace. As far as job satisfaction and in being involved, there wasn't. But I never heeded advice, and I, I, I certainly look back and sort of regret that. Alan, I have a, an amazing quote from you that I'd like to finish with, if I could. Whether you coach cricket or you coach rugby, the principles are the same. You've got to give more than you take. And when you think about what you've given, how would you describe that in the legacy that you would like to leave? Well, I, I definitely go back that to be a good coach, you've got to give more than you take. It's 95% about the player and it's 5% about the coach. If the player is not receptive or doesn't really want to do it, uh, we talked about Gareth Southgate in, in earlier and about his recent book, but I never really picked... Gareth was probably way behind many other players that we had at the time who were just, you could see, were naturally talented. And sometimes it's very easy to latch on as a coach to the naturally talented ones and say, I want to be part of them. You know, I can see this guy's going to be a high flyer. The difficult thing for a coach is to get the ones that have insecurity and not quite sure how good they're going to be and what they can do. So I go back to my Dulwich days. I think my legacy there, yeah, we won a championship, but I've got 15 or 16 guys that I'm really close to. If I look at the Palace team of 1994, we're all still very close together. And also the, the, the Steve Cobbles team of 1990, we're a tight group. There's no animosity. They can never say, you use this vehicle for your own benefit. I didn't. So today, I, I, you know, my enthusiasm for cricket, you know, I mentor a few cricket coaches and I really sort of enjoy it talking about that or dealing with those experiences. So I think I've, I've never looked for a legacy. I've, I've loved doing what I'm doing. I still enjoy it. I still want to be involved. But I'm bright enough now know, to, to, to know when to stand back, when to step in, and don't try and make it your glory pitch. That's what I would say. I'm going to challenge you a bit on that if I can, Alan. So if I had access to those WhatsApp groups you just talked about, and I put a message out saying, What's the legacy everybody thinks Alan Smith's led? What do you think the players would say? I'd like to think they would say he did it for the right reasons. He never took, he gave, and he gave me time. And that's the big thing in life that you, you can't buy is time, giving of yourself and really getting a, a pleasure out of that. I didn't go into football coaching to, to earn a fortune and I didn't earn a fortune out of it. If I'd have done that, if I'd have wanted that, I'd have stayed, gone another career. I would have gone into the, the property world probably and then, but I didn't really want to do that. And I think I, I'd like to think that the majority of them would say he gave more than he took and he gave me time and he, and he helped me develop. Um, that, that's what I would hope they would say anyway. Alan Smith, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you this morning. Thank you for sharing those wonderful stories with us and a, 
a lifetime's worth of advice. I appreciate it. No end and wish you a happy Saturday. Yeah, and the same to you, Paul. It's been a pleasure and good luck to all of you. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Paul here, and you have been listening to our discussion with football coach Alan Smith. Some of the key parts of the interview for me were Alan's views on the importance of team members understanding the history of the club they are representing, how there is self-doubt in everyone, and finding a mentor is a critical step in helping you deal with your own self-doubt. And as a coach, you have to temper your own ego for the good of the team. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. In our next episode, we will be speaking to basketball coach Michelle Clark Hurd. I think there's something that I really can say that I really try to focus a lot on is really taking a look in the mirror after every day. Even if it's after a practice where we don't do well, if it's after a game where we haven't performed at the level, before I go back to them and before I talk with them, I always come with them about what I could have done better. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.